I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Hi, everyone. This is Mitchell Kaplan, and I'm here at the Cafe at Books and Books um, in our Carl Gables location. And I'm sitting having a coffee with Michael Reynolds, who we're going to speak with today. Michael is the editor-in-chief of Europa Editions. Um, Europa is one of the foremost independent presses here in the United States and around the world. You know, an interesting story that I have to tell is one of these days, Michael, we had uh, a number of years ago, it might be 10 years now, we had Michael and Daje come into the store. And we were going around the store and, you know, who who better to get recommendations from than Michael and Daje about any book that one might want to read? And he said, Mitchell, what you really have to read is a book called Old Filth. Is that right? That's he actually yeah. said that. And, um, and I fortunately had yeah. a copy. I wasn't <laughs> really confident, but fortunately I had a copy of Old Filth on the shelf. And I was able to take it down. And it was the first time that, that Europa kind of exploded in my mind and the importance of Europa in bringing authors who we might not have known of uh, even as a as a bookseller who did most of the buying, uh, into the consciousness of the American readership. So tell me a little bit, to start off, uh, tell me a little bit of the story of Europa. Well, first of all, I have a, a story of my own to tell. I was having a, a nightcap 
in the bar of my hotel last night before going up to bed and chatting with a, a very, very well-read English businessman. Um, and it turns out that uh, he had lived here in Miami, you know, 30, 35 years ago and had an office across the street from the hotel that I'm staying in. And he was regaling me with stories of Miami back in the day and how it was a pretty rough and rough and tumble place and there wasn't much going on and he couldn't recruit anyone down to his office because nobody wanted to come to Miami. And he said to me, and then there was this crazy guy who opened up a bookstore around the corner from here. And that somehow changed things in the city, that one bookstore, at least it signaled a change in the city. And I, I thought to myself, well, I think I'm having a chat with that crazy guy, that same crazy guy tomorrow. Um, so I'm very happy to be here. And it's a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for those lovely words about uh, Europa and about Old Filth. I, I remember... When Old Filth was published, I think it was Maureen Corrigan said that she's the best British author that you've never heard of. Um, and I'm very proud of the fact that we've changed that somewhat. That and you've kind of now. made a, a minor specialty in that. I think so, yeah. <laughs> a a minor, minor specialty in, in uh, making American readers or allowing American readers to, the possibility of discovering a whole bunch of authors that they wouldn't have heard of otherwise. Um, and we, we seem to have a particular penchant for authors who are either absent or anonymous or don't want to do public events. So um, much of what we've done as a publisher is somehow seek out ways to compensate for that, to sort of, you know, think, well, perhaps the publisher can be a platform for discovery uh, if and when uh, the author is not available or not an English speaker or um, not keen to, to self-promote. Um, so, yeah, Europa was a crazy idea as well. Um, it's owned by a, an Italian couple. To, they also publishers in Italy and uh, had been publishers for 25 years in, in Italy when they started to feel that the market was a little saturated in Italy and they, at the same time they started to feel that there were opportunities abroad for authors that weren't selling to uh, American publishers. And right about the time of 9-11, actually, after 9-11. I think they were, like many of us, they were quite uh, upset and traumatized, not only by that event, but what happened afterwards. Yeah, the, the sense that there was a great communication breakdown worldwide. You may remember, you know, things like the Freedom Fries and the, the French wine and French champagne being poured out on the steps of Congress and things like that. And they started to think, well, what, as publishers, that's what we know how to do, um, what can we do to sort of address that communication breakdown? Uh, and they thought, well, uh, an American publishing company specializing in works of international fiction would be a good way to address that problem. And, and Europa really grow, grew out of that impulse and that moment. Um, and we've been around and, and um, happily doing business uh, for 15 years now. Speak to me and speak to us a little bit about the difference between a small press and an indie press and mm -hmm. how, that, how that evolved. Golly, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the difference that you're talking about, you know, as these imprints that had very strong identities, even, you know, places, imprints like Knopf and, and Scribner and so forth, um, they, they did have personalities, they did have identities, they were uh, distinct... Uh, businesses often within larger businesses that had 
a particular editorial sensibility, a particular way of doing business. As those companies were absorbed uh, into uh, the larger houses and the larger conglomerates, I think to a certain extent those personalities were lost. Um, and the small press movement, I think, uh, was in, in a certain way a reaction to that, bringing back the idea of an editorial personality, an editorial identity as something that is important uh, in the culture of reading in this country. And I think it's actually becoming increasingly important because we, we're, we're losing some of the traditional discovery mechanisms for finding our next great book and the personality of a press. Uh, it can be one of those discovery mechanisms. So as certain things like review coverage and things like that is shrinking, uh, the importance of a single conversation, a single dialogue that an imprint or a publishing house is having uh, increases, I think. The difference between, I'm, I'm, I think they're almost interchangeable, the independent right. press. I suppose, um, you know, I like the idea, I like the word independent. I like what uh, independent stands for. I think that independence has its intrinsic values. So, um, you know, I'm very much in favor of, uh, independent publishing, uh, independent publishers publishing genre fiction, romance fiction, right. uh, science fiction, everything. Because I think that the, the very independence brings something extra even to those genres that you know I may be less interested in. Um, and, and I think in retrospect, I think a lot of what you're talking about was the ethos behind the notion of the small press yeah. as well. It's just yeah. that the, the, the sort of the name the changed. The nomenclature has changed a little <laughs> exactly. bit. Exactly. Yeah. And and what you know, without without making you blush too much, I think one of the things that you've been able to do is be a remarkable voice for the independent press. Uh, with the success of Europa, I think it's heartened a lot of others to sort of try their hand um, in their own particular genre to to go out and, and give it a shot and try to get the kind of distribution I, I and think get that kind of, 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 of awareness as well. It, it is a good time for independent publishing. Um, and I think, you know, perhaps that's one of the reasons why we um, hesitate a little bit before the, the label small press is because we, we feel like we have the access, we have the means um, to have big hits and to have big books. And we know that the the quality, the editorial. Yeah, quality as you is have. There. I mean, talk about. I mean, I mean, what is it that everyone is talking about right now? But uh, Elena Ferrante, right? Yeah, yeah. And talk a little bit about that, and 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 how that kind of emerged out of seeming to those of us in the United States seeming nowhere. You know, talk a little bit about how that came about. The Elena Ferrante story has been an extraordinary one, and, and particularly, I think, for us, because you, you may not know that the very first book that we published in September of 2005 was written by an, at the time, unknown Italian author by the name of Elena Ferrante. She was the author of the very first book oh, that, that I we didn't published. Know. That's great. Um, and she was very much part of the reason that we, we, we felt we could make Europe editions work, because we had three books waiting to go by this Elena Ferrante. Um, and very happily, that first book, which was called The Days of Abandonment, um, 
did become a national indie bestseller. Um, and that was very much thanks to one or two independent booksellers who said, sure. I'm going to take a chance on this book, on these people. I like what they're about. I like the book. Uh, and sort of, you know, single-handedly made this into an indie uh, bestseller. And so Ferrante has been very much part of our DNA from from day one. And to see the kind of recognition that uh, she's getting now and the, the readership that she has reached is tremendously satisfying. You, you can't imagine. I, I, I remember distinctly um, after we had published My Brilliant Friend, which is sort of the first in this quartet of books that are, have been so successful for us, um, it had done well and we expected it to do well, but we couldn't have imagined you know, what, what eventually happened. Uh, and it had had a, a decent start, but still a slow start. And uh, then we heard that James Wood was writing a piece on My Brilliant Friend for The New Yorker. Uh, and I had a friend at The New Yorker who I was begging to see an early, uh, early copy of, right. this, uh, of this article. Uh, and she said, I'll try to get it for you. I'll try to get it for you by the end of today. And the end of today, it was 6 o'clock and it was 7 o'clock and it was 8 o'clock. It was a very cold uh, rainy day in New York and our office is on the 10th floor and it was dark and gloomy and at about 8.30 at night this piece came in um, you know the test sheets for, of, of James Wood's piece and I started reading it uh, and it was so laudatory and, and, and so exceptionally positive that um, I expected a devastating final paragraph. Yeah, the closer I got to the end, I thought, God, this final paragraph is going good to, be to be terrible. terrible. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I got to the end and it, and it was all positive. It was all great. It was um, a very intelligent and, and, and brilliant sort of evaluation of what Ferrante was about and what she was doing. And, and he, you know, he... He dismissed with the uh, the question of her absence as an author very right. swiftly and got to the books and the writing and what it meant. And that, to me, um, that was in 2005, no, that would have been 2013. And it seemed to me that at that point, uh, you know, some, we had really achieved something. We had gotten to a point where... Um, this author we felt was going to reach a very broad readership and um, and would be appreciated the way that we had been appreciating well, and, and, and the beauty as a bookseller and looking at the bookselling landscape is that you had already you had already achieved a lot of what you had set out to achieve mm -hmm. which was mm -hmm. to give Europa the Europa resonated as a publisher within the distribution community. Yeah. So that as soon as an article like that came out, the credibility that you had and that Europa had doubled down mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. on that. So bookstores mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. were inundated and we could hand sell that book. Like, yeah. yeah. I think it helped get my kids through preschool. Yeah. That's what <laughs> well, I know even, you know, a few years before when we published uh, The Elegance, Elegance of, the Hedgehog, of the Hedgehog, which was a, a, a great success for us as well. And, and that we, we published in 2008, and it really had its big year in 2009. Uh, and of course, they, they were not very happy days in this country. There was, no. you know, recession and layoffs and foreclosures and, and whatnot. And 
that year, in 2009, I must have received 20 letters from booksellers saying if it had not been for this book, I think we would be out of business at this point. Right. To know that that kind of synergy is possible and that you can make a, a contribution one to the other in, in, in that way uh, really, I think, meant a lot you know, for us and meant a lot for our reputation. In you know, we're still a very community. big business, but the beauty of the book business is that if you have a good book, I mean, there are a lot of good books that don't sell. Yeah. But if you have a book, really good book that resonates, it still is book by book by book. Yeah. Word of mouth is still extremely important. Yeah. Yeah. in terms of what happens. And frontline booksellers are the ones who are able to help make that happen That's right. in, a, yeah. in a lot of different ways. Booksellers all the way around. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of other things uh, with Michael in a minute, but we're going to take a break right now. And Michael, it's been great to see you again and have you here at the, at the cafe. Thank here you, at the bookshop. It's a pleasure. You're listening to The Literary Life. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and I'm here with, uh, with Michael Reynolds, the editor-in-chief of Europa Publishers. And Michael, we talked about a lot of the books that you publish, but what I love about what you do is you don't stand still. So Europa, through the Neapolitan novels, now getting into television. Talk a little yes, bit about your HBO right. connection. Yes, well, I mean, that, that's been a happy development as well. I, I, I think Europa has... Uh, a reputation within the industry of uh, sort of doing one thing and doing it very well. But at the same time, uh, in, in order to maintain the energy in-house and to maintain the energy in the market, um, you can't do one thing for very long without uh, changing it up a little bit and uh, investing new energy and new interest in what you're doing. So um, we're very pleased that uh, HBO has taken on the, the, the Ferrante books um, and the first season of their uh, series based on My Brilliant Friend is airing in November. Uh, it, it's been a very happy collaboration thus far. Um, I was, you know, we don't have a lot of experience working either with television or with, uh, with Hollywood. Uh, and I was a little fearful of um, you know different needs and requisites and whatnot but um, it, it, it's been a wonderful connection actually and I think HBO in in this case they they understand that their program is a very bookish program their their project is a very bookish product um, and so they've been very keen to work with are us they, and are they doing it in English and in Italian at they the are same not. time so, HBO is the North American um, producer, co-producer for this project. Uh, the Italian producers uh, is made up of, uh, it's called Wildside, and they're made up of uh, Rai and Fandango, two um, production companies. So it's being filmed in Naples, outside of Naples. Uh, and I understand that they have built the biggest set ever built in Europe for this, uh, for this program. Uh, and I've, you know, seen bits and pieces of it, and it's wonderful. It's it's a very slick production. It's a big feeling production, but still feels very very Italian. Uh, and you know, we were, we were talking earlier about sort of these cultural watershed moments, and I think 
that if this series performs as well as all of us hope that it will, um, it is going to be a watershed moment for American TV and cable culture because it's it's going to be in Italian. Um, and th this is a series that has three million readers. So it'll be million. in Italian with subtitles. It will be in Italian American with board. subtitles. Yeah. You, that's uh, and if that, as I said, if that works, uh, it's going to open the doors to a lot of other content yeah, in the US. Well, I, 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 I think there's so much content coming from around the world right now on other platforms like Netflix and others. Yes. And people are getting used to watching things with subtitles that I think I, I, this augurs very well. And mm. that with the popularity of the books as well. Uh, but the other thing is, not only are you getting into television, but what I love about what you're doing is you keep exploring a whole bunch of different avenues that the press is going down. Mm. So, for instance, I, you're doing your first uh, young adult book. That's right. As well. Yeah, that's uh, right. Talk a little bit about that. Well, that too. I, you know, when, when this project, uh, this book was presented to us, and, and again, it's a quartet of novel, novels. So we're publishing the first of this quartet called A Winter's Promise in September of this year. When it came to us, I was a little bit skeptical or a bit hesitant, I suppose, because we have had a number of changes over the past couple of years and I felt that we perhaps needed a, a period of stability and opening up a new channel, a new, a, a new uh, uh, activity with YA books uh, seemed to be imprudent. Um, but I read the book and I loved the book and, and then started looking around at uh, the situation as far as it concerns work in translation for uh, in the YA market. And however tragic the situation is for adult fiction in translation in this country, international fiction coming from abroad, the number that is often bandied about is 3%. Yeah, 3%, only 3% of the market is made up of works in translation. However tragic that is, for the YA market, it's 10 times worse. There is so little coming from elsewhere uh, for young adult readers in English. And when I realized that and um, you know, went out to bookstores asking booksellers that I, I, I love and respect and, and, and trust their tastes, can you give me a YA book in translation? And they were drawing a blank. Um, the more times that happened, the more this idea made sense to me and I, I felt that we, it was something that we had to do. It fit in our uh, mandate, let's say, as part of our mission. So I, I'm actually now very, very excited about this YA book, as I said, not only because it's a great book, but because it fits perfectly with what we're about. And the same with noir crime novels. I think NPR said uh, Europa Editions is good news if you're a lover of crime novels. Yeah. And talk about the noir series that yeah. you've launched. Well, crime fiction has always been a part of our, our list. And, you know, I think that that also is a function of uh, the moment at which uh, Europe Editions was born in, in, in 2003, 2004, 2005. In those years in Europe, uh, the mystery novel, the crime fiction novel, was seen as an, an extremely important uh, vehicle, an extremely important genre. Uh, we specialize in a school of crime fiction called Mediterranean Noir, and the, 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 the sense of that, um, that kind of writing 
at the time and, and still now was that in many ways it was sort of filling this void uh, that had been left by the departure of serious investigative journalism. And there was very little of that happening anymore through the 90s into the, into the noughts. Um, and the crime fiction novel and crime fiction writers, in a certain sense, were filling that void by using crime fiction as a vehicle to take a look at what was happening socially and politically and uh, what was happening in the culture and, and, and the various different factions at work. Um, and so when we designed the, the, the initial project of Europa Editions, it seemed uh, absolutely no yeah, no-brainer to, to, to want to bring some of this crime fiction to uh, American readers, sort of the godfather of the list to... to um, of the the world noir list is a French author by the name of Jean Claude Itzau, um, who is a, an extraordinary was an extraordinary writer from Marseille, uh, and he typifies this idea of writing entertaining, uh, thrilling crime fiction that is also a window into what is happening politically and socially, economically in a in a city or a country. What you just said about uh, what is happening politically or socially in a particular country is something that I've always seen as uh, one of the most admirable things that you do. And uh, you have also brought that, you're trying to bring the world, you're sort of uh, crossing borders mm -hmm. in so many ways. And you have a program that you started as well called Book Selling Without Borders which I think goes, at least within the industry, my industry has raised the awareness of the fact that there also should be a camaraderie among booksellers around the world as Absolutely. well. And yeah. you you, you started that. Talk a little bit about yeah. that as well. Yes, it's very much about camaraderie uh, among booksellers internationally. I, You know, this started, I, I suppose, um, years ago. It started, you know, sort of, um, developing years ago because for a long time now there have existed uh, editors trips where various different cultural agencies or ministries or publishing associations take editors from various different markets to their markets uh, so that those editors can be exposed to um, the bookstores and agents and uh, other publishing houses say in Finland yeah they'll take a group of editors to Finland to uh, educate them about the market um, and for years I'd been telling the organizers of uh, these trips well you know you're making a mistake by only taking editors I don't want to shoot myself in the foot here I'm, I, I don't want to miss out on my next trip to Finland but um, it's a mistake to bring 10 editors because uh, we are uh, an ecosystem and that ecosystem uh, includes critics, reviewers, agents, and booksellers. And if you're going to organize a trip, then you should be including those booksellers on those trips. Um, but they weren't paying much attention to my um, <laughs> my suggestions. So uh, at a certain point, we decided to do it ourselves and to create this fellowship program for booksellers that would allow them to visit uh, their counterparts in foreign markets to visit the international book fairs to Guadalajara, Guadalajara and Frankfurt. Uh, we're, we're adding Seoul uh, next year and uh, possibly Jaipur 
as well in in India. Uh, so it you know it really is a chance for booksellers to connect with the larger um, book industry, international book industry, to connect with their colleagues abroad. Because I, I think you know the the point for me is that if if I'm going to you and saying, Mitchell, you really need to take take a chance on on this book, Eleanor Ferrante, The Days of Abandonment, bring in more than you, you typically would into the store because she's great and, and she's such an important Italian writer that she needs to be better known here. Well, the point is that everybody is telling you that. Every publisher is telling you that. Um, and every publisher is telling a reviews editor the same thing. And I, I just thought, well, how great would it be if you had that network of international booksellers, and you could pick up the phone or shoot off an email. So how's, and say, that, how's it really work? Is, is it true what that Michael <laughs> yeah, wrote? Because exactly. he's always here telling me the same thing about his, his latest author. Is it true what he's saying? I thought that that would be a great well, idea. I, we a great network to have. It is a great network, but I can actually say, Michael, when you, you know, it's the the old cliche: when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Yeah. I mean, when you when you recommend a book, people listen, mm. and and you've been able to do that and so many times with uh you know with with your press and the other thing that you you have a beautiful eye for is picking out unique voices here in the united states mm. that haven't been published so for instance our very own chantelle acevedo i say yeah. our very own because she's a cuban-american who lives here in miami mm -hmm. and she wrote a marvelous book called the distant marvels mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you were able to sort of mm -hmm publish her so beautifully mm -hmm. as well that must be very gratifying it's too. very gratifying and, and i i think well i know that from the very start again uh we, we didn't want to be a translation only publisher we, we we really wanted to do something that was international and inclusive and diverse uh and and that was you know the the very root of the idea of Europa was that that inclusivity. We 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 didn't want. We wanted to make international mean also America right. and France and, and, also, and Guatemala. Well, before before we talk about how you're able to identify those folks living here and what that caused you to have to do in your personal life, mm -hmm. would mm -hmm. you like another cup of coffee? We are sitting in the cafe, and many of the listeners may be hearing some of the. Hustle and bustle that happens in a cafe. I'm, but if, I'm pretty hyped up already. You're pretty, pretty good about it. Up, yeah. Okay, terrific. <laughs> usually, you know, if I have one of our uh, cafecitos here in the cafe, I usually don't sleep until like three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a very big lightweight when it comes to that. But to get to your personal story, because you've actually said something that could be easily transferable to the bookselling world. And you, in one of your interviews, said, the world of independent publishing is full of people with bizarre and moving and surprising mm. personal histories. Mm. Mm. And um, you, when, when you were explaining those personal histories, you said, any route must begin at the beginning and nowhere else. Mm. Mm. So tell me about your route. I know that it has, yeah. it's filled with so mm. much color that I would love to hear more about how you got started. Well, you know, I... I uh, I grew up in Australia um, and felt that I, I, I may have been born in the wrong place uh, most of my young life. And so I couldn't wait to, to leave and, and did when I was 21. Uh, and, and before and after that, like uh, as is true for many 
um, people who, who leave their hometown or um, many immigrants, uh, life is full of adventures. So I, I did many jobs, many, uh, a great variety of jobs. Um, Talk I about, had, I mean, they really were a variety of jobs. They were a variety of <laughs> jobs. So I think it went any, anywhere, anywhere from, um, well, I, I, I once tended the largest maze in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I was a groundskeeper for a long time and, um, I Where was, was that? Where I was in Australia, in Australia still in Australia. Um, I was a working musician for a long time. I worked in a gold mine for um, almost a year. I mined peat in Scotland for, um, or dug peat in Scotland for, for quite a while. Um, I painted houses. I worked as a builder. Now, while you were doing that, were mm. you pursuing something else on the side as well? I was pursuing my literary interests. Yeah, I was very. I, I, I had discovered reading late in life. I think for um, for what I think would be the average for many people, but um, you know, in my teens, I think I really fell upon books as a uh, life raft. Well, uh, can you can you speak to some of those early books that you read? I, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a in a bookish household, so I, I think probably the earliest. Uh, things that I remember reading were probably Reader's Digest and things yeah, like that. I don't remember even Shirley Jackson. Yeah, yeah things a lot like of that. us. Yeah. Things like that. And then the, the lottery. The, right? the lottery. <laughs> um, and, and then I, through music, I think, was a real, was really the way that uh, I found my way to books. I, um, I grew up uh, with a half brother, half sister, and um, they they fought terribly with my father, um, and so left home very early. And my brother, who was um, a great aficionado of music, uh, said one thing to to me before he left, and I was probably eight or nine, and he was sixteen or seventeen. Um, said one thing to me before he left, and that was, "Don't touch my records." <laughs> So of course, of course, you I, I went straight to, to the records and listened to every one of them on headphones. You know, at, at the time, though, you had to sit very close to the stereo and, because and, the and they were real very, records and they were real records. And, they were vital. Um, you know, I, I remember listening to artists that I would wouldn't have discovered for a long time. I think on my own, um, you know, Bob Dylan and things like that, and references to uh, strange names like Rambo and Verlaine, and I thought, who are these characters? Um, and you know, took the liner notes of that album to my local library and said, "Can you find me something by these people?" Um, and I, you know, I think that that was sort of my my route into in, into reading and to and and I think you know, I was I was looking for something that would take me out of um, my my circumstances um, and pro- probably. The story or the, the, the book that had the greatest concrete impact on my life was, um, my, my young life was uh, Evelyn, the James Joyce story from Dubliners. And um, it seemed to me to be a, a, a mirror of what would happen if I couldn't show more wherewithal than, than she <laughs> did in that story and um, motivated me to start to make plans to, to, to leave um, Australia, and uh, and so I did. Um, and you landed where first? In afterwards. Los Angeles, right. and thought, oh right my God, States. I've made a horrible <laughs> mistake. 
<laughs> I went straight to the States. So was what year was this about? That was on the Cinco de Mayo of 1989. Oh, okay. Um, and didn't even know what Cinco de Mayo was. And I thought, <laughs> is this what it's like here all the time? <laughs> um, and Did you come uh, with a job or not? No, with a I job? didn't. I, 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 no. I just uh, got away as soon as I, I could. I'd, I'd had some, I had some savings from a year working in a, a gold mine in Western Australia. Wow. And uh, pretty much blew them all in, in the first few months uh, in, in California. Reading your way through, and then did you think of publishing as a job that would be suitable for you I, at that time? No, I, I'm not sure. I think like many people and and even like many keen readers i think that it was an industry that had never even occurred to me right. honestly not 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 as a job option but that it existed it, right exactly <laughs> yeah. um, I, I suppose I, I really did think that books grew on trees um, <laughs> if only right? if only <laughs> Uh, and so, no, it wasn't in, until many years later that um, publishing occurred to me as an area that uh, all of these diverse experiences and, and, and my interests might converge. Um, so you left L.A. and... Uh, so I left L.A. and went north to, to San Francisco and um, spent the very last money that I had from my gold mining adventure at City Lights bookstore buying the collected poems of Allen Ginsberg yeah, God. and clutched that book um, as I, I spent sort of two years on the streets in, in San Francisco because um, I, I really was unprepared for finding myself in a foreign country and without uh, any real contacts and without any um, so you took a lot of odd jobs when you were in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah, a lot of odd jobs at that time. And uh, it was, so many it was, of us made a you know so many of us. City Lights has meant so much to yeah. so many of us. Yeah. When I was a seventeen-year-old at the University of Colorado, I made a beeline across the Rockies to get to City Lights myself. Yeah. Well, yeah. Those, those you know iconic literary spots are. Um, are just wonderful and city lights is an extraordinary so store. So when did you make the jump to Italy? When did that So then I mean, years passed and I, I you know sort of found my footing in the US and um, left for a little while and was in Scotland for a while in France for a while and then came back to, to Boston and spent five years in Boston. Uh, after which I, I felt I needed an antidote to to Boston. Um, and Rome seemed like a good antidote to, to Boston. So I moved to Rome in 2000. And there uh, I, I was teaching for a while and also running a literary festival in, um, in Rome. And, and thanks to that work with this literary festival, uh, I, I started to meet people in publishing and writers and whatnot. So the, so the big leap came when you ran the literary festival which got you really into a deep dive into I, I, the industry. I think so. I, I how did a, that happen? How did it was it just did you answer an ad? <laughs> no, I, I really I, as with many things in my life I I, I created the literary you festival created so, it was because something. I it didn't exist. Yeah. And you learned Italian while yes, you were there. Yeah, yeah. Um I you know I I realized I I think in Rome that um I I lacked that literary community and couldn't find it and couldn't find couldn't gain access to it or it, it didn't exist i wasn't really sure so um this 
festival came out of that. I thought, well, um, you know, it's it's one way for me to create a community around me. And it also seemed at the time that, you know, there were there were many uh, good English-speaking authors who were passing through Rome at the time, um, and there was no real format for them to right. to um, to read or to. So we're talking mid nineties. This, no, much. this was in 2000, 2001 2000, through 2000. 2000. And then you hooked yeah. up with the people from Europa. Exactly. At that point. Yeah, exactly. So they, uh, as I said, they um, they had an Italian publishing house, Edizione right. EO. And I, I, I got wind of what they were planning with Europa Editions and went and knocked on the door and said, <laughs> maybe I can help. And you then, decide, you know, your philosophy seems to be a similar kind of one that I have, which is what I call the why not philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just why not? Yeah. And, yeah. and you then made the move to the United States. Yeah. And you're now living in Brooklyn. That's right. And yeah. I know that you still have your love for music. Yes. And yeah. tell me what gives you some of the greatest pleasure when it comes to music. I mean, I, I, I'm a, I listen to so much music and, and, and it's always, I think, been such an important part of my life. And, you know, as I hinted at earlier, it has probably led to the most um, important discoveries and changes in my life and, and has provided me with an education and provided me with, um, I don't and, know, so much fun. And, and Talk to me a little bit only because I know a little bit about it, yeah. about how how much pleasure you get sharing it with your own children yeah. at this point. So, well. uh, you know, my, my children, I, I have two daughters, one 12 and one 9, and they're, they're both very musical. They love music um, and, and listen to a lot of it, and, they, and they're good listeners, which I think, you know, I, I'm trying to become, the end of my life, I would like to be a good reader. Yeah, that, that is my great ambition. Um, and the fact that they're good listeners of music and good readers, by the way, um, I, gives me so much pleasure. And... Recently, we've uh, we've been lucky enough to um, to have two guitars that have arrived in our our, our house in our apartment, and uh, my uh, both of my daughters have sort of been fooling around with these guitars. But uh, in particular, my my older daughter recently was home uh, sick uh, uh, a few months ago, and when I got back from work that evening had learned her first song on the guitar um, and was singing along with it. And it was just such an extraordinary and touching moment oh, for me. And just beautiful. to see that the pleasure that she's getting out of it now and to have that connection to music, I think is so important. So yeah. Michael, let me ask you a defining question. Mm. If, if your road, this road that you took, had gone slightly in a different direction with your love of music, mm and it had gone in a more musical direction. Mm. Looking back, if you were to make a choice, books or music, <laughs> would, that, would that be a choice you would make or would you continue to try to bring them both together as you have? Perhaps what I like best uh, about being a practitioner of music is the band. I, I love the dynamics the between collaborative band, nature the collaborative of nature of it. I mean, last night we were watching a terrific band here, Ico. It was Ico, Ico, yeah. yeah. At, your, um, at the store here, and and you know, I, I, I'm entranced by the dynamics between musicians. I think it's a, a somewhat mystical and magical thing that happens. Um, I, I'm intimately attached to books. I think books have always been 
such a big part of my life and if I had to do it over again I would go down the book route as well but I think one of the reasons that I seek these collaborations with our our friends and and colleagues in publishing is because I uh, you know I I seek to simulate that uh, that band experience in a certain way and I think sometime in the future when you continue to develop your musical mojo Mm. we're gonna have an evening of Michael Reynolds and his band. <laughs> you can always do that on the side. Lots of people do. Love. And we'll have you in the courtyard. It's been just right. a really lovely uh, morning with you here at the uh, on The Literary Life. And I thank you for being here. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.